In the summer of 2002, I, uh, I was working for the Neosho R5 school district on a painting crew, and it was a four-man crew consisting of myself, another college student named Jim, and two retired school teachers named Charlie and Jack, both of whom were at least 50 years our senior. When you paint for eight hours a day, classroom after classroom, all the classrooms are the same. You have nothing else to do uh, but to try and irritate the 70-year-olds on your painting crew. And so Jim and I would engage them in various conversations that we we knew would get them riled up. And um, politics was a sure bet. So we, uh, we would get them to begin talking politics and, and knowing that Jack and Charlie liked to argue with one another. Uh, Jack being a Republican and, and Charlie being an old school Southern Democrat who remembered the good old days of JFK but, but bemoaned the, the moral drift of his party because he was a Christian. He was staunchly opposed to same-sex marriage and abortion. And so he was kind of a, uh, he called himself a, a man without a party. Um, Jim was, as far as I could tell, a, a lapsed Mormon. He was at least agnostic, probably atheistic, and uh, was also the, probably the smartest man I, I've ever met. Uh, he went on to graduate from law school uh, from Harvard. He was Missouri's assistant attorney general a few years back and uh, will probably occupy a federal bench at some point in the future. That's beside the point. He's just telling you that I know people. <clears throat> At any rate, in the course of this conversation, uh, Charlie said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, well, whatever happens, the United States had better support Israel. And uh, the way Charlie talked, it, it didn't much matter what Israel did. The U.S. was obligated to, to back them. And uh, this struck me as odd at uh, the age of 19, so I asked him why. Uh, why should the U.S. throw its unqualified support behind Israel? And his, his answer is one that I've heard over and over and over again throughout the years. It was drawn straight from Genesis 12.3 and God's promise to Abraham. He quoted it to me verbatim. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. See, in Charlie's mind... The, the fate of the United States and the fate of the American church, and, and the two were hopelessly intertwined, depended upon whether we were a blessing to the nation of Israel or a curse to the nation of Israel. And it was black or white. There was no middle ground. Either we offered them our unconditional, unqualified support, or we were counted among Israel's enemies and thereby God's enemies. And Charlie's position on Israel was by no means a minority position among Christians. When I was growing up, it was not, as all, not at all uncommon to see uh, bumper stickers that read, this Christian stands with Israel. Uh, many of them were in our church parking lot. Churches would sometimes hang the Israeli flag, uh, the, the blue star of David uh, in between the two parallel blue stripes on the field of white. They would hang that Israeli flag right in the, in the front of the church sanctuary between the American flag and the Christian flag. Uh, Israel My Glory magazine graced church foyers sitting right next to our daily bread. 
And all of this interest in and support for Israel was undergirded by a theology called dispensationalism, which is a big word, but you don't have to be scared of big words because we'll define them for you. It's a theology you've all heard of, whether or not you knew the label to call it. Dispensationalism is a way of understanding God's relationship with the Jewish people, Israel's relationship with the church, and the way that these relationships will play out at the end of the age. Dispensationalism is a complex, some would say overly complex, theological system, but essentially it rests upon three main truths with regard to Israel, the church, and the end of the age. Number one, God made an unconditional and everlasting covenant with the Jewish people that includes the promised land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Therefore, the land of Canaan, modern-day Palestine, belongs to the Jewish people by divine right. Number two, the church and Israel are two separate entities in God's economy. Two separate entities under two separate and distinct covenants. Israel relating to God by means of the Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant and the church related to God through Christ on, by means of the new covenant. This present age in which we live, they will call the church age, and it is, in their view, a parenthesis in God's plan for Israel, during which God's grace and his salvation are poured out upon the Gentile nations. And then number three, at the end of the age, God will rapture his church, turn his face once again toward the Jewish people, and bring to fulfillment all the promises made to Israel throughout the Old Testament, including and especially the promise of the land. Israel will then be brought to faith in Christ, at least in the most responsible um, takes on dispensationalism. Then the messianic kingdom will be inaugurated. It will last for a thousand years. And, and Jerusalem at that time will essentially serve as the capital of the world. During this millennial messianic kingdom, the temple will be rebuilt, the sacrifices will be restored, and the Mosaic law reestablished. Now, dispensational theology has only been around since about the 1830s, which is my first problem with it. It was advocated first, as far as we know, by an Irishman uh, by the name of John Nelson Darby. It gained a foothold in the United States, particularly among Baptists in the middle of the 19th century, uh, was popularized through the ministry of D.L. Moody, among others. But dispensationalism really gained its entrance into the mainstream of American evangelicalism through the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. Raise your hand if you or your parents had a Schofield Reference Bible. The rest of you probably should check your salvation at the door. I mean, it was in the home of every evangelical household in the first half of the 20th century. And J.I. Schofield, C.I. Schofield rather, was dispensational to the core. And in his notes at the bottom of the Schofield Reference Bible, this theology was promulgated. 
Dispensationalism received another tremendous boost of credibility in 1948 when Israel was granted statehood. And then again in 1967 when Israel won an improbable, some would say miraculous victory in the Six Days War. It seemed to many evangelicals that the end of the age was upon us and that God had remembered his Jewish people. He turned his face once again toward Israel and we should probably look up to the skies because the rapture is soon to come. Dispensationalism continued to solidify its foothold in popular evangelicalism through Hal Lindsey's 1970 bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth. In the 1980s, through the rise of the televangelists, nearly all of whom were dispensational. And in the 1990s, through Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' mega best-selling series, Left Behind. Although, from, from my little perch at least, dispensationalism seems to be waning in influence in American evangelicalism, and, and by the way, it never really caught on in the rest of the world. It remains today an influential theological system, and it continues to inform the churches, the American churches, that is, view of Israel, which in turn continues to drive the United States' foreign policy toward Israel. But dispensationalism is, in my humble but most accurate opinion, deeply and dangerously flawed. As we will see in the coming weeks, and we'll be on this for three, God's covenant with Israel was not unconditional. That is, his covenant with the Jewish people as a nation, constituted at Mount Sinai, was not an unconditional covenant. Go back and read it. It was conditioned upon their faithful obedience. How many times in the book of the law did God say, if you will obey my voice and obey my statutes and my laws, then you will be blessed and you will remain in my land. If you don't, I will spew you out of my land and I will send you into exile. It was not an unconditional covenant. Therefore, the land does not belong to a disobedient and faithless people by divine right. And at present, Israel as a nation is still faithless and disobedient to the gospel. More on that next week. Furthermore, the church and Israel are not two separate peoples under two separate covenants. Rather, the new covenant in Christ fulfilled and rendered obsolete the Sinai covenant, the old covenant. Therefore, the one people of God, the one covenant people of God, and he has no other, are those who are united to God through faith in his son, be they Jew or Gentile. Male or female, slave or free, rich or poor. There is one way to be rightly related with God, and that is through faith in Christ. And all of this means that the church, that is the true children of Abraham, is now the Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. Now, There are implications of this that are wide-ranging that, again, we'll explore in the weeks to come. One of them, however, is that the U.S. is not obligated 
by Genesis 12.3 to support anything and everything Israel does. Now, I quickly want to come back and say there are good and multitude reasons to be closely allied and very much supportive of the nation of Israel. But Genesis 12.3 is not one of them. Now, I begin this morning with this um, rather incendiary introduction I mean, one need only peruse the internet for a few minutes to see just how touchy this topic can be. Because Romans 11 is one of the key battlegrounds in this discussion. After all, Paul begins Romans 11 by asking whether or not God has rejected his people. Has he rejected Israel? And his answer is a strong no, by no means. But as we shall see... How Paul works out that answer differs greatly from the way many of us might assume. Now at this point, I plan to spend three weeks on Romans 11. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, which focus on Israel's present state of unbelief. And how this does not mean that God has rejected his people. What does Paul mean by saying, no, God has not rejected his people, Romans 11, when in Romans 9.3 he says that Israel is accursed and cut off from Christ? How do those fit? Then over the next two weeks we'll explore God's future plan for Israel, what it entails, what it does not entail, and along the way hopefully find some answers to the question of how the church should think with regard to the Jewish people, with regard to the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan, both now and in the days to come. So we've got a lot to cover, and I hope you'll stay with us over the next three weeks. Paul essentially makes one argument in verses 1 to 10. The argument is this. God has not rejected his people Israel because... Just as in the days of Elijah, so in the present day, God has reserved for himself an elect remnant from among the people of Israel to be his faithful followers, of whom Paul is the preeminent representative. That's his argument. God has not rejected his people Israel. Rather, just as he did in the days of Elijah, just as he's always done, God has reserved for himself a remnant chosen by grace to be his faithful people, faithful to him, not bowing the knee to Baal or any other false religion. And Paul is the preeminent example of that faithful remnant. Now, this is not a new argument. If it sounds familiar, it is. It's the same argument Paul began to make in Romans 9, 6, when he said that not all who are in Israel are Israel. The word of God has not failed, Paul says in Romans 9, because God never promised to save every single Israelite, but only those Israelites whom he had chosen, not according to works, but according to his own purpose of election. Paul's argument here is very much the same, and it proceeds along three basic lines. First, God has not rejected his people because Paul is an Israelite, and Paul is not accursed and cut off from Christ through unbelief. 
Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. First, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is Paul asking this question? Paul's asking this question because if, if we did not have access to the book of Acts, if it wasn't in our Bible, if we'd never read it, if we didn't know the story of Pentecost when 3,000 Jews were converted to Christ, if we didn't know the story of the first several years of the Jerusalem church when the Lord was adding to their number day by day those Jews who were being saved, if you lived, say, in Rome in the mid-50s A.D., then you might be under the impression that God has completely cast off Israel from the covenant and that his saving mercies are now entirely focused upon the Gentile nations. Why? Because when you look around, you see just a few Jews in your congregation and almost entirely Gentiles being converted to faith in Christ. So Paul is emphatic that God has not rejected his people. The hardening that has come upon Israel is not total. Rather, as Paul will say in verse 25, it is partial. And the first evidence that God still has a plan and a purpose for Israel, that God still has mercy for Israel, is Paul himself. See, Paul emphasizes his Jewishness in three ways in verse 1. First, he says, I am an Israelite which is a reference to Paul's national identity. He's of the nation of Israel. He's he's of the descendants of Jacob, whom God brought out of Egypt and whom he constituted as a nation there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Secondly, he says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, which speaks of his ethnic identity. In other words, he's he's not a Gentile convert to Judaism. He's a full-blooded descendant of Abraham. And thirdly, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, which serves to further his Jewishness because Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. The holy city Jerusalem was in Benjamin's tribal inheritance, and Benjamin was the only tribe of Israel to remain faithful to Judah and to the Davidic kings. But not only is Paul more Jewish than you ever dreamed of being, He's also the last person you would have ever thought would be on the receiving end of God's new covenant mercies in Christ. Paul hated Christ. He hated the church. He hated Christians. He wanted to wipe them from the face of the earth. He saw them as a real and present threat to the Jewish nation. And yet he found mercy, didn't he? Galatians 1.5, he says he was set apart from his mother's womb, called to be an apostle by Christ himself. In other words, Paul's argument goes like this. God has not rejected his people because he's shown mercy to me, the most Jewish person possible and the least likely convert imaginable. That's his first argument for why God has not rejected his people. Second, verses 2 to 4. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. 
and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So now Paul confidently states what in verse 1 he, he asked and answered. Has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we've run into that word foreknow before. It, it, it came upon us in Romans 8.29 where we saw that it's used synonymously with the word chosen. In scripture, the word foreknowledge, when it's applied to God's knowledge of man, it doesn't mean his knowledge of facts about man. It means his electing love set upon man, his choice of man, his election of man. Let me give you just one example, and you can refer back to that sermon to see the many more that I gave as we, we walk throughout Scripture to show that to be true. The one example, and the one that I think is in the back of Paul's mind when he, when he says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, is Amos 3.2. In Amos 3.2, the Lord says concerning Israel, You only have I foreknown of all the families of the earth. You only. I haven't foreknown any of the Canaanites. I haven't foreknown the Egyptians. I've foreknown you only. Which clearly shows that it cannot refer to knowledge of facts about them, things about them, because God knows all facts about all people in all places at all times in one eternal act. It wouldn't make any sense for God to say, I foreknew facts about you only. It must mean something else. There's a decisive element in God's foreknowledge, an electing element in God's foreknowledge. Amos means God chose Israel out of all the families of the earth. And it is Israel's election which Paul points to in verse 2 and which forms the basis for his confidence that God has not rejected his people. Okay, I find evidence for this interpretation of verse 2 down in verse 28. If you look at Romans eleven twenty-eight, Paul says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. We're going to come back to that verse, but just look. Paul calls unbelieving Israel the enemies of God as they presently stand. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, God makes no mistakes. Those whom he chooses, he saves. It's inconceivable then to Paul that God would have unchosen Israel. God doesn't change his mind, his gifts, his calling. They're without repentance. They're irrevocable. Therefore, God has not rejected his people. But that still doesn't solve the problem of why then so many of Israel are, in Paul's words, accursed and cut off from Christ. Why are so many of Israel rejected by God and yet, Paul says, God has not rejected Israel. How does that work out? Well, it's here that Paul explicitly introduces what 
has been implied since Romans 9, namely his remnant theology. It's a very prominent theme that runs throughout the prophets, particularly Isaiah. The idea is that God keeps his covenant promise to Israel, even though Israel is faithless and disobedient, by preserving within Israel a faithful remnant and giving the rest of Israel over to sin and judgment. Paul provides an example from the Old Testament of God doing this in the days of Elijah the prophet. In 1 Kings 19, Ahab, the king of Israel, has killed the prophets of Israel with the sword. Verse 1. Then Jezebel, his wife, threatens to kill Elijah. Verse 2. So Elijah flees out into the wilderness and he begs God for death. Verses 3 and 4. But God sustains him in the wilderness brings him to Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he speaks to him. Elijah voices his complaint to God, 1 Kings 19.10. The people have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And in response, there's that wonderful scene in which God sends a wind. And the wind tears down the mountains and it shatters the rocks. And then he sends an earthquake and the rocks are rent in two. And then he sends a great fire. But he says the Lord was not in the wind and he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire. And then finally in a low whisper, the Lord assured Elijah that no, he was not alone. No, the covenant had not fallen, and no, the word of God had not failed. 1 Kings 19, 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And this has been the case throughout Israel's long history. Israel's story is not one of faithfulness and obedience. Read the Old Testament. It's one of idolatry and unbelief. Yet in every generation, the Lord has reserved for himself a faithful, believing believing remnant through which he maintains, that is the Lord maintains his covenant promise to an Israel within Israel, the spiritual sons of Abraham within the physical sons of Abraham. They've always been in the minority, but they have always been. And, says Paul, they always will be. Finally, the third argument Paul makes for why God has not rejected his people, He takes the example of the remnant in Elijah's day and he applies it to his own day. Verses 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's application of the Elijah text to his own day I think makes sense on at least four levels. First, Just as Elijah was in his day, so is Paul in the present day, the persecuted prophet whose own people seek his life in order to destroy it. Paul is simply the latest in a long line of prophets whom Israel rejected and sought to kill. 
Jesus testified as much. Stephen testified as much. Jesus said in Matthew 23, just shortly before his own death, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And Stephen said just before his death, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Paul's primary persecutors were not Gentiles. They were his own countrymen. And city after city after city, it was the Jews, not the Gentiles, who troubled Paul and hindered his ministry, with the notable exceptions of Philippi and Ephesus. And in Paul's last known visit to Jerusalem, the Jews of the city rioted against him and sought to put him to death. So Paul sees himself, I think legitimately, as a modern-day Elijah, one of God's faithful remnant, persecuted by the unbelieving majority. Second, second reason Paul's application of the Elijah text to his own day is apt, is that just as in Elijah's day, so in Paul's, the majority of Israel are unbelieving and hardened, resistant to the gospel, and violent toward the church. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonian church, just a few years before he wrote Romans, he had this to say, which gives us tremendous insight into the way he viewed himself and other Jewish believers like him as opposed to the Jewish people as a whole. 1 Thessalonians 2.14. He's writing to the Gentile church in Thessalonica, and he says, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Okay, now those are Jewish Christian churches in Judea. He says, you became imitators of them. Okay, well, how did they imitate the Judean churches? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Strong words. In other words, the churches of Judea, churches comprised almost entirely of Jewish Christians, according to Paul, were under constant assault from the Jewish people. And I want you to note the strong remnant theology in this passage. In Paul's mind, those churches in Judea are like the 7,000 in Elijah's day who had remained faithful to Yahweh and had not bowed the knee to Baal. The rest of the Jewish nation were like the rest of Israel in Elijah's day, namely unbelieving and resistant. Third, just as in Elijah's day, those who were not a part of the remnant Uh, I'm sorry, just as in Elijah's day, those who were not part of the remnant were committing idolatry, right? They were bowing the knee to Baal. Even so, in Paul's day, unbelieving Jews were and are doing the same. Now, this is not to say that unbelieving Jewish people are pagan, that they're involved in pagan idolatry. There's no evidence to suggest that that was the case in Paul's day. It's not the case in our day. Uh, it seems, at least historically, that their exile in Babylon cured them of their addiction to paganism. 
Rather, the idolatry of first century Judaism and 21st century Judaism is far more subtle. They've turned the law into an idol. In essence, they treat God as a pagan deity who can be controlled, either pacified or assuaged or coerced by their works of the law. If an idol is by definition an object in which you trust rather than God to protect you from evil, to provide you with good, then the law was the idol of the Jewish people. Furthermore, they turn their Jewish identity into an idol. They turn their ethnicity into an idol. They imagined that their right standing before God was a result of their physical descent from Abraham. Witness John the Baptist's interaction with the Jews in Matthew 3 or Jesus' interaction with the Jews in John 8. Finally, I would add that they had turned the temple and the sacrifices into an idol at least until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., which is one of the main points driven home by the author of Hebrews. See, once the final sacrifice for sin had been offered, namely in Christ upon the cross, no further sacrifice for sin was required, nor would it be accepted by God. The sacrifices that continued then to be offered in the temple were a blasphemous rejection of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, which is why the author of Hebrews, a Jewish Christian himself, writes to a Jewish Christian congregation and says, Stop going to the temple! There's nothing for you there other than the anger of a God who is an unquenchable fire. Serious stuff. So yes, the Jews of Paul's day and ours were just as guilty of idolatry as Israel in Elijah's day. Finally, just as in Elijah's day, so in Paul's day, this remnant of Jewish believers is chosen according to God's purpose of election. Not according to works, but according to him who calls, says Paul in Romans 9.11. And Paul, once again, is absolutely emphatic on this point. The remnant in Elijah's day were chosen by grace, he says, not on the basis of works. In other words, they were not elect because they had not bowed the knee to Baal. They had not bowed the knee to Baal because they were elect. This is the force of Paul's addition to his quotation of 1 Kings 19.18, where he has God saying, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men. I've kept them. I did that. They were chosen by grace, preserved from idolatry, brought to saving faith by the sovereign electing grace of God. Paul says, so too, in the present day, those Jewish believers like me, he says, who comprise the remnant were chosen by grace apart from works. In other words, they were elect, or they were not elect because they were believers in Christ. They were believers in Christ because they were elect. And I'm not sure how Paul could possibly be clearer. Election is by grace apart from any mixture of of works or merit. That's how antithetical works and grace are. 
If works are taken into account at all, even if it's 99% God's willing and working and only 1% ours, that 1% that is ours becomes the decisive element that distinguishes us from those who do not believe and it becomes the grounds in which we will boast, which is the very reason why God designed salvation to be according to his election of grace to begin with, that no man would boast before him. The moment that you allow works in the back door, the moment that you allow yourself to say, I'm saved because, and the way you fill in the gap is something that doesn't reside in God's free and sovereign grace, that is your grounds for boasting. And Paul says, no, there's no grounds for boasting. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, do you see how that destroys the popular view of election, which says that God's choice of us is based on his looking down through the corridors of time and seeing who would first choose him? Notice that Paul does not contrast works and faith, which he does in other places. He contrasts works and grace. It can only be one or the other. Either our salvation is in the final analysis the result of God's doing, God's willing, God's working, or in the final analysis it's the result of our willing and our working, even if it comes with a good deal of God's help. And Paul says that's not grace. Grace must be utterly free under no compulsion or obligation of any kind, otherwise it's not grace. If God's election were based upon our foreseen faith, that would make God the responder and us the decider. That would not be an election according to grace, that would be an election according to faith. And boasting would not be excluded. Don't shy away from the doctrine of election. Let God be God, and let God be gracious. There's one more movement of this passage that we need to examine briefly, and it's verses 7 to 10, where Paul explores the other side of the election of this remnant. If verses 1 to 6 are concerned to show that God has not rejected his people because he's reserved for himself an elect remnant who believe on Christ and carry forward God's covenant promises, then verses 7 to 10 are concerned to show that the rest who are not part of that elect remnant are rejected. And this too is owing to the sovereign activity of God. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the issue here, as with all of Romans 9 to 11, indeed, as with all of Romans in general, is the issue of the righteousness of God. That's what Israel sought but failed to obtain, right? The righteousness that God demands of all men, the righteousness of God to which we all fall short because of sin, 
that righteousness that Christ obtained through his life, death, and resurrection, that righteousness of God that God gives to us by faith apart from works and on the basis of which he justifies us, that righteousness of God that is the theme of the gospel. That's what Israel sought, and it failed to obtain it, except for some. The elect obtained it. What happened to the rest? They were hardened. Hardened by whom? Hardened by God. This is evident not only from the parallel verse in Romans 9.18. He's not saying anything in Romans 11.7 that he hasn't already said in Romans 9.18, namely that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But it's also evident from the Old Testament quotations that he, that he marshals. The first, verse 8, is a combination of Deuteronomy 24 and Isaiah 29.10, which speaks of God giving to Israel, imposing upon Israel a spirit of stupor. Literally, he put them, he, he lulled them into a deep sleep. And he gave them blind eyes and deaf ears. The second comes from verses 9 and 10. Or verses 9 and 10 comes from Psalm 69, 22 to 23, which speaks of God turning the tables on the Jews. Uh, don't know what that table refers to. It could be the table of the altar. It could be a reference to the food laws. Maybe it's the table of the law. Whatever it is, it's something that they're trusting in, and it becomes to them a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and the instrument of God's retribution upon them. David was speaking in Psalm 69 of his own enemies in the original psalm. Now Paul applies David's words to the enemies of Christ. Listen, you can soften Paul's language in Romans 9 to 11 if you want, but you'd be twisting scripture. It means what it says. I suggest rather that we let God be God. We leave election and reprobation, mercy and judgment to God. At any rate, the hardening of the majority of the Jews in Paul's day and in ours is not the main point of Romans 11. It is, as we will see next week, a means to the end. Over the next two weeks, we will see that this hardening of God upon Israel is partial, not total. It's temporary, not final. Look down at verse 25. I'll show you where we're going and then we'll close. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Remember the main point of Romans 11. God has not rejected his people. There is an elect remnant chosen by grace who believe on Christ and carry forward God's covenant promise. It was true in Paul's day, of which Paul was the preeminent example, and it's still true in our day. Witness the pockets of Messianic Jews found in almost every Jewish community around the world. Furthermore, the hardening that God has imposed upon the nation of Israel is only temporary. It will not last forever. Again, look at the second half of verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
There's an end date when God will remove the hardening. He'll remove the scales from their eyes. He'll remove the veil that covers the face of Christ in the gospel. And they will look upon Christ as the only begotten son of Yahweh, the Messiah, sent into the world to save sinners, the Jew first and then the Greek. And they will worship him as their Messiah. And then the end will come. There's a lot more to say about Israel in Romans chapter 11. And my plea to you is that we would say it biblically. 